Welcome to the Privacy Lamp Podcast with myself, James Shaw and Michael McLaughlin. I was recently asked what is Privacy Learn all about and how does it start? Well, in a nutshell, given that life doesn't come with a manual, Privacy Learn is all about hearing life lessons from the people of all different backgrounds. Why Privacy Learn came about is an interesting one. I lost my parents fairly recently. My mum of cancer and my dad a heart attack, pretty much 12 months apart. My dad just before Christmas 2017 and my mum Christmas 2018. This tragic event, which truth be known, I'm unsure I ever got over, but I had to deal with, got me thinking about life lessons that I could pass on to my own children. My now 11 year old son and my six year old daughter. And given that they don't listen to me, I was talking to my good friend Mike over a beer about life lessons. And Mike himself is a father of two and he has also lost his own dad. I want my kids to hear advice and life lessons, but only know what I know. And even that, depending on who you ask, isn't worth knowing. So I thought, why not speak to people that have been there, done that and got the t-shirt. And that is how Previously Learned came about. On this episode of Previously Learned, I was joined by the amazing Dr. Tara Quinn Cirillo. Tara is a psychologist and author and the host of the brilliant podcast, The Adversity Psychologist. Please check out the notes to Tara's website in the show notes. Tara and I spoke of parenting, resilience, understanding how and why we react, imposter syndrome, and having conversations. I really hope you enjoy this one. Right, so Dr. Tara Quinn-Cirillo, welcome to the Proofs Learn podcast. How are you? First question, how's it been? Thank you for having me. I'm actually really excited to talk to you because I'm not used to being in the other chair. Um, so I'm really excited to get going and hopefully have some insight to share with people. No, good stuff. No, looking forward to this. No, thank you very much for coming on. I know you're very, very busy. So I'll give a, a, a brief bio on you. So you're a counselling psychologist with over 20 years um, clinical experience with an in-depth knowledge of mental health and disability. You're the host of uh, the excellent podcast yourself, The Adversity Psychologist, and yeah. we've got a mutual connection there with Mark Berridge. Who oh, we do. A fantastic one as well. We'll get that yeah. in. Yep. Inspirational guy, so I highly recommend people listen to your podcast with him. Yeah. Uh, and you're also the author of Talking Heads, a uh, guide to find a qualified therapist. Yeah. On top of this, you do quite a lot of media work. How did it all come about? How did, how did it all happen? I don't know. Just kind of <laughs> fell into place, which is kind of how I like it. Um, so I, I trained as a psychologist, did that, let's just say, late 90s. We'll stop there. We don't need to go back any further. Um, and I worked in the NHS for many years, which was wonderful, but it's more of a rigid model. Um, and basically, when I had my two children, I just needed a little bit more flexibility, if it's okay to say things were changing in the NHS and the way that we worked and didn't quite align with my values about how I wanted to work with people and help them achieve their own personal well-being goals. So... I set up privately, so I set up my own clinic to see people, um, and I did that for probably about ooh, seven or eight years, and then I just wanted a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so I am someone who's quite innovative, and I like new ideas. A pandemic came along, mm-hmm. and I felt a little bit lost, just wanted to do something, and I thought, I have these skills, what can I do? A lot of people were struggling with this idea of lockdown, and our brain goes into threat mode and worries about what's going to happen. None of us had known anything like that, had we? So I set up um, just an online Facebook group. And from that, I ended up doing a little bit of media work because that got picked up. Um, I ended up talking quite a bit through the pandemic about how to support your mental health. So I wanted to reach more people. So I love running my clinics. I like my one-to-one work, but 
I always feel I don't reach enough people and not everybody can get access to private one-to-one psychology. So I started running a community group, started doing more media work, and that's kind of led to things like the book, the podcast. It's just coming up with, we're mostly philanthropic ways of reaching people, but helping them also understand a bit more. So I like getting good quality information out there, hence the book that I've written, Um, and just helping people also know what they've got in them already to cope, which hopefully we're going to go on to talk about as well, aren't we? We have so much in us, and I want to help people harness that. And psychologists be quite good at working collaboratively mm-hmm. with people. So that's kind of how I've got to where I am today. So I have a few hats, um, but it's all really valued stuff. Just have to be really careful how I manage my time and look after yeah. myself as well. Yes. Yeah. It's always important to look after yourself as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's obviously with the psychology work, it's talking and listening. Has that always been inherent to you or is that always something you've always felt growing up? This always makes me smile, actually, which I need today. Um, so when I was little, my mum won't mind me sharing this. Um, I really wanted to do ballet, but I'm quite tall. You won't be able to tell when I'm sat down. Um, I was not great fit for ballet because I was too tall, but also I talked too much. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of signposted in the direction of brownies where perhaps my verbal skills might be put to better use. So that always makes my parents laugh and and people that have known me a long time that I end up going into a talking profession. So I like talking. I can be a good listener too. Hopefully I've got the right balance. Um, So yeah, I think it was just a fit for me. I like being able to help people. Um, I like being able to empower people. So I didn't want a job where I was the main person kind of supporting someone. I wanted them to be empowered and, and being a psychologist allows me to do just that, watch them grow, help them collaboratively, you know, utilize the skills they have, help them with some extra skills, help them understand what's happening. So yeah, talking and psychology it goes really, really well. And podcasts as well. Yeah. Uh, how important is it to talk? So so important. We um and I talk about this a lot, so excuse me if people have listened to me on other shows and things before, but we're at a real turning point in the UK with how we view emotional health. So I'm not going to use the term mental health because I think actually that is a barrier to a lot of people talking about things. So our emotional health is just as important as our body, as our physical health. It's also linked to our physical health. So for me, we are getting much, much better as a society, especially men. So what's really interesting coming on your podcast and hopefully, you know, there are um, men listening to this that actually we're getting much better at getting men talking as well. So, you know, historically it's been a little bit harder. For men, there's a little bit more stigma around men admitting that they are struggling. Um, but then right down to the basic level, just encouraging people to have conversations. Um, look at the pandemic. It really kind of a, a big cyborg, didn't it, on us being able to connect physically, which is really important. It's lovely to be techie. Um, but some of us have lost the art of conversations. We've got really good at our online forums. We've got really good at using messaging. But yeah. it's so important to connect. And if you can talk to someone, whether it is through any medium, that's important. But if you can do it face-to-face, even better. Mm. It's kind of why I ended up running my community project, really, which is getting people to talk while walking mm. with each other out in yeah. nature. Can't get better than that. No. Well, the reason I asked that, I mean, like about talks, I think obviously listening is important as well. Yeah. And uh, a very good friend of mine, hopefully you won't, well, I won't name him, but probably about two years ago, I had a chat with him and we called up out of the blue about meeting up and transpires is in a very dark place. Okay. And I didn't know, obviously I could listen, but I then didn't know what to say about it. I didn't know yeah. what I should ask and how you deal with it. And it's, 
it's just tough. And like you say, I know or with men and stuff like that, but it's I, I think yeah, I was just I didn't I wanted to help him, but I didn't know how to help him. And I found it really difficult what to say and what to do. And do you know what's really important is being able to have honest conversations about that. Sometimes people feel that they need to be this problem solver, they need to know what to do. And actually sometimes that ends up being a barrier. That's all right to say. So <laughs> I always use the school path as a really good example of this. Sometimes you might walk past someone and say to them, how are you? But you're still walking and you're kind of not giving them those cues to say, I'm here and I'm listening. So how often somebody does that, do you feel you can honestly say, actually, I'm not great or things aren't great? We kind of do. And it's okay to say British culture, we're very good at the fine, fine, absolutely fine. Or it's all a bit rubbish, isn't it? But we're fine. Um, so I think the first thing is admitting that it is hard, but also from that, we don't need to problem solve in order to support people. And sometimes we feel, again, I've got to know exactly what to say. So then we might avoid people or even avoid asking because we're worried about not knowing what to say or saying the wrong thing even. And I would say two really simple things that you can do are ask and maybe ask again. Mm-hmm. You know, so if somebody's looking and we can pick up from their facial expression, from their body language, so looking like there may be something we can go, do you want to talk? Or how are you really? Or do you know what? Should I send you a message later? Because sometimes it might not be the right time to talk. Mm. But also that when we do get around to talking with them, that we just give them a space to be heard. Often that's what people need. And we can do something called validating, which is we don't necessarily need to understand or know what the triggers are for why they're feeling the way they are. But just being able to say a simple thing that means you've heard them. I'm so sorry to hear that. That sounds really tough. I'm really sorry to hear that you're sad at the moment or that you're stressed about something. And that can mean the world to people. And that can then open up further conversations. And you can ask them what they would like. Do you want me to check in on you again? Do you want to catch up again? You know, should we go have a coffee or a beer even? Yeah. That's the important stuff. So sometimes we can overthink it. Yeah. Um, we can be kind. We be kind to ourselves with that um, because it's very normal. But if we can catch it, that's where I think actually we can make some big differences in how we support people around us. And, and anyone can do that. Anybody. No, good stuff. No, thank you. Um, and if he's listening to this, I apologize at the time. That wasn't a very good listener. <laughs> so I didn't know what to do. But, uh... but that's part of a good friendship going, do you know what? I wasn't sure what to do. And you can ask people, you know, what would you like me to do? Is there anything that is helpful right now? And also my favorite question, is there anything that isn't helpful? And sometimes we know the answer to that before we know the answer to what we yeah. do need. You know, so, you know, you can be kind to yourself, be compassionate and kind of, you know, just own that and, and then it's okay. Yeah, no, fantastic. So obviously adversity uh, takes many forms, yeah. emotional, financial, uh, health. Can can we oh, can we deal with adversity or can we train to be deal with adversity or is it a fight or flight? We absolutely can. So one of the, my lovely questions that I ask people that I work with, but also people in my life as well and a little bit of media work that I do is, if you look back on how you coped through the pandemic, would that match how you thought you were going to cope? So when Boris first said, we're going to lock down in a couple of days, a lot of us went into threat mode. Mm-hmm. We might have had all these preconceptions about how we're going to cope, myself included. We're not going to homeschool. How am I going to run my clinics? What is life going to look like? Are we going to get through this? Most people will look back and find that actually they were quite surprised with how they coped. Mm-hmm. And if there were things that were really difficult, how they navigated that and whether they reached out for support, whether they're able to cope themselves. We have so much 
you know, it's kind of innately and from our life experiences to help us cope. We actually have a lot more resilience than we think. Sometimes we need a little bit of help on top, but yeah. I always think it's a good starting point to just remember, do you know what? Look back through your life, look at the stuff that, you know, the curveballs that have come our way. Have you navigated those? And that's where you can perhaps then identify if there are any repeating patterns, things that you haven't found so easy that maybe you need extra support with. Um, so I think, yeah, get to set yourself a baseline. We're quite good yeah. at coping with adversity. We are resilient. Human beings are resilient. We learn, we file information to use at another time. Um, but sometimes it's okay to be vulnerable and go, do you know what? When I'm faced with these kind of things, that's when I need to reach out for help. Well, that's when I notice maybe some unhelpful behavior patterns or some yeah. unhelpful responses. And what do I want to do? with that yeah no so you saying about the, the lockdown it's i think yeah. the first lockdown was a little bit not easy is the right word but tolerable because i think the weather was good at the time and we could get yeah. outside what? yeah i remember homeschooling in the garden and yeah manageable yeah and we were very fortunate at the school our teacher for my son his teacher at the time was like as long as I've done their maths and English I don't care if I haven't done the other one just get outside get outside in the fresh air do a game that'll do you more world of good than worrying about your free history I'm not saying you like it's not important but it's get get the core stuff sorted out first of all uh, but then I think the second lockdown in winter that was torrid that was pretty tough being it was yeah I really struggled with that one I think because we our brain's really good at filing up past negative experiences yeah. then we, it was all ready to say to us this is how it's going to be um, it was winter um, for a lot of us as well schools were only making decisions the night before so we kind of had a difficult Christmas I don't know whereabouts in the country you are but some places were placed into tier four very very close to Christmas so we might not have seen family members if we did we had to socially distance and then we had that lockdown so it's like so many factors together and we weren't sure how long it was going to go on for either so there's still all that uncertainty and we already knew and that's my biggest thing we already knew about homeschooling and what it's like and it's hard when you're working as well it's, and kids might not be receptive to learning with parents it's a bit like learning to drive with family members it's not a great combination so you know if you're time pressured come on, get this mask done. And I had that. I'm a psychologist. I shouldn't have had to do all this stuff. There were times and I was super stressed because my, you know, then six-year-old, he couldn't regulate when he was in the mood for maths. And I'm not a teacher to help him do that. So yeah. he would just end up in a shouting match between me and I'll own that going, we've got to get this done because I've got a clinic in half an hour and I can't let my patients down, but you need to do this work. So it was a lot for all of us, yeah. wasn't it? No, it was a lot to do. And this, I turn my hat off to teachers now. It's like, um, oh, absolutely. It is, they deserve medals. They really do. But, yeah. <laughs> I read a, a quote on, on your website about life throwing a lot at you and then our way. And then you've got hope, resilience, and compassion. Yes. And we've got certain tools and coping skills. What kind of coping skills can we do? And, you know, is there anything we can practice to get better at stuff? Do you know what the number one thing, and it always sounds a little bit silly, but if we can understand what is happening, why is it that our brain responds the way it does to the things life throws? Um, one of the difficulties and one of the things I do find hard with social media now and some some self-help books as well, to be honest, is they dive straight into doing, here's some breathing, here's some relaxation you can do. Those things are great, but if you don't understand why it is that you've responded to anxiety, to a stressful situation, to a loss, whatever it is, 
that's not going to make a core shift in how you manage and also how you manage other stuff. So everybody that I work with, we do what we call psychoeducation, but it doesn't look that glamorous. It's not sexy. It's not like it's wonderful mindfulness that we can sit down and do. It's not like hot stones that we can put on our back if we go for a certain type of massage. Um, but it's so, so important. So if you can understand and then also normalize what's happening. So if we take anxiety as an example, if you know why it is your brain responds to anxiety, why sometimes we freeze, why we do behaviors that we think we shouldn't do, you're able to then catch them. By that, we mean in that moment, go, ah, oh, look what I'm doing. My brain's responding to this stress. I'm getting anxious and therefore I'm doing this behavior, but actually that's not helpful for me. And that's where we can begin to create what I call a bit of daylight and look at our behavioral responses. And that's where we can start to use some things like breathing techniques to give us some space to calm that overwhelm to then decide. So we don't have lovely clear thinking when we're in threat mode, when we're anxious. Our body's basically primed to fight or flight, or sometimes it gets a bit stuck in the middle, which we call freeze. But if we're able to just calm the overwhelm a little bit by just going, hang on brain, I'm noticing what you're doing. And that's where the compassion comes in. But it sounds sometimes it sounds a bit silly when you're talking as a psychologist about this. But believe me, if you can take a bit of time, almost treat your brain like a friend and go, I can see you're trying to keep me safe here. But actually what I'm noticing is that I'm now engaging in behaviors that aren't good for me or maybe good for other people. We might be avoiding things, avoiding our emails. We may be phoning in sick to work and then, you know, getting disciplinaries because of that. If we're able to catch the stuff, understand it, and then start to utilize more practical strategies like mindfulness, like breathing, ways of challenging those negative thoughts, for example, that's where we start to make a core shift. And we can use that then with whatever life throws us. So that comes back to my point before that actually that's really empowering that we know we've got the skills, we know what's happening. It's a bit like if you've got a sailboat and the wind picks up, there's a lot of power there. But if you're able to catch and go, this is anxiety, it's okay, it will pass, my brain's doing what it needs to, immediately it will take that power out, which means you've got a little bit more control over how you respond. How do I know then, for example, certain signs of anxiety? Because they're going to be different for different people or... Will it be? They can be. So sometimes I refer to what we call your footprint. So you might have your low mood footprint, your anxiety footprint. So if you've had anxiety at different times of your life, you may already be aware, actually, when I get anxious, this is what I notice. And as a psychologist, sometimes we make it a bit easier by saying, let's break it down into sections. So I might say to someone, I always start at the top and work down the bottom of the body because it's much easier to remember. Try and notice what kind of thoughts you have because there may be similarities. So if you're someone who gets very anxious in social situations, you may notice you have the same kind of thoughts. People are laughing at me. I look like an idiot. I'm going to say the wrong thing. So if those thoughts show up, it might tell you, ah, this is my social anxiety now. What do you notice in your body? And by that, we mean physical things. So it might be that your heart rate increases. You might have tension in your shoulders. You may notice you've got sweaty hands. Tightness. Sometimes people feel nauseous or sick even or have kind of wobbly jelly legs. But then what kind of emotions do you have? We're not all great at being able to identify and name emotions. Yeah. Though. Happy, sad, frightened, angry, shocked. What is this? And then the last little bit, what do I do when that shows up? So that might be different for a lot of people. There are similarities with anxiety. So for a lot of people, they will notice, you know, maybe increased heart rate, for example, tension. Those are all really common things maybe sweating yeah. as well um, because we kind of get into a little bit of a loop where we start to then think everyone else is going to notice that we're red that we're sweating that we're stumbling over our words yeah. um, so there can be commonalities what we say 
as a good psychologist, I sign paper to the NHS website. So you can look at all of these different presentations on there and have a look if any resonate with you. But it may be that after a little while you can go, ah, I don't tend to have this, but I do have these things and that can help you notice. And again, coming back to my sailboat example, it will help you catch him in the moment as well. But that doesn't just apply to anxiety. It can apply to all sorts of things. Low mood can show up very different for people. Um, stress, knowing the difference between stress and anxiety, for example. So all of those things are on the NHS website. It's really important again, and that comes back to my psychoeducation point. If we can learn about all of these concepts, we can spot them, and then we have much more control over how we deal with them. I, I think I've gone almost the other way. You know, it's uh, when I when I when I lost my parents, I, I used to be a bit of a you know, probably was a bit of a warrior. But since losing my parents, I now think it doesn't matter anymore in the grand scheme of things it doesn't matter anymore and I've yeah. almost convinced myself not to worry I've gone too far the other way I think oh interesting yeah and you hear that a lot actually oh really yeah yeah that can be quite common it, yeah. you know and grief is a very interesting thing but sometimes we also might reflect on that loss and what it means sometimes it might help us put things into perspective um, so sometimes we might worry about things and then realise when we've been through a big life transition or a loss, a loss like that, that actually some of those smaller things are things maybe we do have control over. Yeah. Um, and it can sometimes help us. I love values and that's something really important to me as well, that sometimes when we have a big life transition like that, it might make us realise what we really do value. And that can sometimes really help with things like anxiety and, and low mood. Um, that if you know, you know, your family values are there or your values or things perhaps that you might have spoken to your parents about, um, that are important to them that you want to carry on there's so many different things yeah. um sometimes it can have a big impact on our mental health but in a positive way as well as a negative way yeah i was going to say i mean like it's I, I i've kind of this sounds perverse but i've almost taken losing them as a positive because it's allowed me to do something like this and it's yeah and now pass on this kind because of, i'm doing this purely for my kids because yeah with what I loved, as soon as you, I saw you, I think it was on LinkedIn the first time yeah. you were talking about your podcast, and I was like, absolutely, really resonated with yeah. me. What a lovely thing to do. Because I'm not, that's a, thank you, Rodman, but I've got a, you know, I, I I regret that there's certain things I can't ask my parents now. Or, yeah. yeah, of course. And it's like, and I don't want my kids to have that with me. Yeah. But I haven't always got the, or I haven't got the answers, but I'm hoping speaking to people like yourself and others they've kind of got answers and they can formulate their own um answers on the back of that so it's just yeah so it's I'm a gonna... great concept as well what a lovely thing because it's not just helping the listeners but there's something valued in it for you in terms of your own family your own parenting yeah maybe even their parenting beyond that you know it's, it's not endless not finite is it is it you no. go on and on yeah well believe me about that parenting that's one thing always questions that Am I am I a good dad? You know, and I, and oh, I, yeah. sometimes we do something. It's like I don't know if I'm doing it right, but it doesn't. Life doesn't come with a manual. No one gives you a manual when you have kids. It's like I don't know what I'm doing here, and I don't want to then make them like if their issues going down the line. Like, Absolutely, I think so many listeners that will resonate with. I'll, I'll let you into a little story actually that I love. So when I had my eldest. <clears throat> Is now a teenager. Um, there was a well-known lady who used to write um, weaning books on how to wean, um, and I remember being in my kitchen, totally overwhelmed with a new mum, <laughs> wondering how I'm going to puree this carrot without choking my child. And now I look back, and I have a teenager, and think I really didn't 
have to worry about that carrot. But at the time, that was really important to me. I wanted to keep my child safe. And I know I'm laughing about it, but it just really does. You know, parenting is so hard and there isn't a manual. And the closest to a manual ever got is how to wean, you know, and perhaps how to help them with mobility, that kind of thing. But it is so, so hard. And I think but what's really lovely, you know, our inner critic, our inner voice is there to try and keep us safe. So sometimes it might say we're not doing a good job because it, it's just doing its job. And sometimes we do need to say, do you know what? Thanks, brain, but I got this and I'm doing all right. You know, bring that compassion back in, especially self-compassion. Because um, we don't always get that from our kids. You know, it's not their job to tell us we're doing a good job. You know, they might get the odd bit of feedback. So it can be sometimes a bit isolating, can't it? Because you're not getting that feedback on how you're doing, um, especially as they go through different transitions, you know, yeah. getting older. Well, you know, I'm I was talking to someone recently and he said very much so and he's like he thinks he's doing the right thing because his son's like 18, 19 he, says, he thinks he's doing the right thing now because his son's like come look down the pub a little bit yeah. and it's like so that's nice. yeah they want to spend time with you again which is nice yeah. they come back again don't they at that age yeah. but yeah just those little things you know those little benchmarks what does that say and what are your values about being able to go and have a pint with your son yeah. you know how lovely no, very much so. It's all about memories as well, isn't it? You know? Absolutely. Somebody else once told me, and this is when my kids were a little bit older, I think they were about six, or one was about six. Um, I remember thinking, oh gosh, when's the last time I washed the towels in the bathroom and I've got to clean the bath, but I've got to play with them also and I don't want them on iPads while I'm doing that. And somebody said to you, they're not going to remember how often you change the bath towels. And it really stuck with me because I was like, it's so, again, and it's so important to be able to catch that brain going, I'm not doing, you know, the yeah. bath has to be immaculate before we can go play but actually get downstairs play with your kids and don't worry the towels can wait it's absolutely fine and that really really stuck with me so i just think it's a nice thing to share whenever i'm asked about parenting that we've all been there even even the psychologists we've all yeah. been there no i've had exactly the same it's like with sports days and previously i might miss sports days but now it's like no I, I, i'm seeing my kids in sports day now exactly what you're saying they're going to remember that rather than me being in an office having a meeting you know it's absolutely and during the pandemic we weren't able to do that as well so yeah. and even in the time afterwards there are still some rules and still schools were deciding as to what to do so we did miss out um and i know particularly with one of mine he didn't have a sports day for ages because he was just the wrong age when he started yeah. school for the pandemic so um it was really important but also there's that guilt that there are sometimes you might not be able to get there through no fault of your own, just the way things are and the dates that are chosen and feeling that guilt as well, but also being compassionate about what that looks like and having conversations with your children about times where you may not be able to be there. Because um, I'm sure we've all been met with the, you're the only parent that didn't come and, and that, yeah. oh, that you know kind of thunderbolt of guilt that can come, but also just explaining and them seeing you do valued things. So I, I work and I work most days on something. So there have been times where I've had to go to something that's work related and not to something really important for my children and it's always a hard thing but letting them know and for me particularly as a working mum of two boys to let them see that kind of gender role that I work that what I do is important to me as well because there's a lot of value for me and, and a lot of things that I do so it's a hard balance isn't it as you know you've got to know what your values are this is my baseline and I want to try and get to things but if life throws things your way and you can't go be compassionate as well no, well, I've got a son and a daughter, and they are like chalk and cheese. And my daughter will leave the note and pull the heartstrings. It's like, you know, exactly what she's doing. They know how to push those buttons, don't they? Absolutely. But I used to have hair for our kids. 
I had less bags and groceries. Don't talk to me about bags. But, uh... I can, they're part of his journey, aren't they? Little things that you pick <laughs> up, you know. <laughs> we'll be compassionate. Yeah, well, it's part of life, I guess, isn't it? Absolutely. So talking of advice, what advice would you give your younger self if you were... Oh, that's a good one. What advice would I give my younger self? Oh, I would... I used to get quite caught up in, you've got to do things perfectly. You know, if you're doing something, you do it well. And there's kind of a hard balance between wanting to do your best and not Mm. cut corners, but just I would be a little bit more compassionate. So I'd say to my younger self, it doesn't matter, you know, that you don't need to do everything perfectly. And I'd perhaps introduce my younger self to values. You know, what is it that you value about doing the thing you're doing rather than the goal being absolutely ticked off and wrapped in a bow and, and looking perfect? Um, because I think that would have reduced a bit of stress on younger me. Do you think the, the kids of today, or not kids of today, but kids in general, yeah. they, feel that, they feel that pressure and that stress? And, and, how, and how can I, as a parent, say to them that it yeah. will be all right, you know? So I want, I want my kids to talk to me. I, I've always said to them, "Yeah, no secret. Our, our house is our happy place. There's no secrets in this house. And I, if they're having a tough time at school, for example, oh, they've got to be able to talk to us. Yeah. So I, I really agree with that. Yeah. That creating a safe space. Because I think, I guess, from you know our generation being at school, we've got tech now. We've got social media. There are forums. We're not so aware of mm. kind of what our kids may be faced with, even though we can try and parent and police devices. But, yeah. you know, one of my children is an age now where he needs a bit of autonomy online. Um, so I think what you can, you know, it's again coming back to what's in your control and what isn't. We can get very stuck on what isn't in our control. Um, you know, I must make sure I know every device they're on all the time, but at some point they're going to be 50, 60, 70, they're going to be having that independence. So I think absolutely come back to your values of just creating a safe space and telling them if you're unsure about anything that you're seeing or you're unsure about anything anyone's said to you or just confused about life, come and talk to us. But also creating the physical means of doing that. So in a lot of families now, we're in and out. I know we're literally like fox, chicken and grain in our house. So we try as far as possible to all be eating together or as, as, as close as um, so having some kind of central points is is really, really important. And we've actually tried really hard in this house that we have that because that sometimes starts those conversations. Yeah. Um, and a, a wise colleague um, who I talked to recently who kind of specialises in parenting and teens was just telling me, you know, we don't have to have the sit down face-to-face conversation because sometimes that makes your kids back away. So just yeah. if you're walking together, you're in the car. And sometimes when you're not directly opposite each other, it facilitates better conversations. And she gave this lovely example of if you're chopping some veg and they're chopping veg next to you if they're a bit older, you know, just uh, letting them naturally talk, trying almost to shy away from the, how are you? You know, the direct, Mm -hmm. they walk in the door, how was your day? Or when you pick Mm -hmm. them up from school, perhaps just changing your language and timing. Mm -hmm. So again, having those values, letting them feel safe and talk, absolutely. But also making sure you're creating a way for them to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I just sometimes say, you know, I'm in the kitchen if you want to come and hang, that kind of thing, really. Sounds so cool, but rather than if you want to talk or do you want to talk about your day, because sometimes yeah. it makes kids just freeze and, and yeah. they don't want to talk. <laughs> so, yeah. well, what do you know? What have you heard? Like, oh, no. <laughs> 
That's the, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because usually when your parents want to talk to you, or in my generation, it's because something had happened and, yeah. and worried you're in trouble. Um, but it's also just that, you know, that if something does happen um, and, you know, if there are times when your child has come to you, also just saying, I'm so glad you felt safe enough to come to me, using nice language like that. I'm so glad that you felt able to come and talk to mum about this. Or if they've chosen one parent or whoever, whatever caregiver, they've spoken to a child minder or somebody that's something that's worried them whether it's another relative just kind of saying oh i'm so glad you felt able to tell them what was going on because it just it helps provide that extra feeling of safety as well i think that's you know what that's exactly what we had at home the other day and something happened um i don't know what it was but he thought it was really important at the time it was important to hit but and i said to him the next morning he got to go to bed and we've gone to bed up saying it won't go the next day. i said you've done the right thing doing what you've done there and the fact that you've told us yeah. It's not his problem anymore. It's now our problem. We can solve it. It's not down to him to have It kind of helps everybody, doesn't it, yeah. really? So we haven't got a child holding lots. Yeah. But, you know, actually for us to know they're okay and they're coming to us if they need to, that's really yeah. important, isn't it? And if there are times when they don't, for whatever reason, also having that compassionate approach, you know, and kind of helping them know, gosh, it must have been really hard. And, you know, what can we do? If that happens again, you're in a situation, how can we help you? What do you need? What don't you need? Because there may be sometimes where there are things that are a bit tricky to bring up um, and just, you know, letting them know that they don't have to, again, get it perfect every time. Yeah. Um, that can be important too. Yeah, we're all learning, I guess. And as I said, it's the oh, 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 biggest learning curve. Yeah, and <laughs> no, that's something sometimes as well. I sometimes get it wrong. I get it wrong. You know, it's, there's we nothing wrong with getting it wrong. I don't Spectacularly so at times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And that that's okay, you know, that showing our children we're vulnerable too. And sometimes we mess up or sometimes I might be snappy and then go, oh, actually, maybe they were trying to tell me something. But I'm like, oh, why is everybody asking me stuff? Because we can get overwhelmed as well, can't we? So I guess owning your stuff, if you can, it's helpful as a parent. That kills me. And I, sometimes I find myself saying something and I thought, why have I said that? Or the way I've said it, yeah. I don't know. So I, I, I'm... I hate myself for it. Then obviously you try and remedy it, but it's like I shouldn't have reacted. And that's my issue. And I said, it's not their fault; it's my fault. It's how much reacted. It wants to rocking up, yeah. and if we can again using that compassion to kind of go, look what I'm doing now. I'm beating myself up. So <laughs> I'm a human. Sometimes we say things. Sometimes we do things. Sometimes we get things wrong. Um, but it's kind of about what you do about that. You know, we can't change what we've done, and we can really put spend hours up in our heads but we're not our value laden lives so if the value is I want to repair things or I want to own it that's really important and how do I do that you know telling your child you know what mummy got that wrong or do you know what oh I really messed up oh, God, I really lost it didn't I I'm so sorry you know just letting people know that we're humans you already is how the kids have moved on it's even one ear now the other they don't care <laughs> but sometimes it's good for us to be able to do that process as much as it is for them yeah, yeah very much so so would you do anything differently that was paying down would i do anything differently i guess the perfectionism thing so um one of the biggest things about a lot of psychologists is imposter syndrome so we always feel a bit like we're frauds or we're doing the wrong thing um so i guess there's again coming back to that kind of perfectionism and I would be more compassionate to myself throughout my whole career on what I've done and why I've done it. And I think because I've set up lots of small things at the moment, a lot of different projects, sometimes you can feel you're not doing a good enough job with all those things. You're juggling a lot of balls. So I kind of think actually 
you know, there's something there about bringing a bit more self-compassion and being kind. Um, and then perhaps looking back on my career going, do you know what, actually, I did okay there. So maybe a bit more gratitude for yeah. what I've done and that it's okay. Not everything works out. And that's how we learn. And, you know, what's the value of learning and refining to make things mm -hmm. better? So, yeah, I give myself less perfectionism, less stress and worry about getting it right and mm. not beating myself up for being an imposter. And mm. Whether someone else is better for the job, that's always been something that stuck with me. Why, why me? Why am I here? Why, why, why not go to somebody else to do that? So how do we deal with that then? Because I'm, I'm, I'm really I've, I've got imposter syndrome over this podcast, you know. Oh, think... yeah, well, we were talking about this before, weren't yeah. we? Yeah. And it's like someone like yourself, for example, has come on and as you willing to spend some time and talk to me so I, I'm thinking what, why would someone what, how do you know do you, I'm trying to articulate what I'm trying to feel but it's like how, how do I deal with that so hard so again the really boring answer is understand what's happening with your brain so it's yeah. no different to being anxious when you're in threat mode that you're here vulnerable with a podcast that could go out to so many people mm -hmm. it's something new and our brains don't like uncertainty they don't like anything new we like predictability and you know sameness um so it's your inner critic your threat brain and it might be around judgment appraisal by others judgment from yourself on how you're coming across um imposter syndrome is really really difficult i struggle with it and will probably always so i guess one of the things is just maybe leaning into it and going maybe this is just something that shows up for me because of what i've been through in life things that i've picked up things that may have happened to you you know if you've been told by people things over the years things have gone wrong your brain stores that up um but just being kind and compassionate just notice that now and think what's the value in talking to me right now so if that inner critic's rocking up with this isn't good why does she, does she want to talk to me is she really bored is just going thanks brain i've noticed those thoughts but actually right now i'm talking to tara and we're having a really nice conversation yeah. Um, and you know, not kind of seeking. What you could do is ask me: Are you are you okay? Do you want to be here? You know, trying to avoid those kind of things. You know, yeah. trying to not give in to those thoughts. Just notice and name them, and come back to what's really important to you, which is these great questions: What they're doing for your kids, but also everybody yeah. else who wants to listen to this as well. So, is this like the um, you're in a gym, for example? When you when you say about like, is it like a tooth and Is that so? Like very similar. Very very okay. similar. Because I, I, I remember reading it and I found it like, it's like almost I haven't got a chimp living in my head kind of thing, but it's like dealing with that emotion. I could have a metaphor sometimes, yeah. So, and, and like when you read the chimp paradox books, the yeah, ones that you're referring yeah. to, um, having a physical, I find that some people are better with words, some people are better, um, you know, listening to things and auditory, but some people are visual. So, for other people I work with, they actually benefit rather than me verbally describing a concept, but they actually come up with a, an image, a kind of a metaphor for it. Um, and I think that's why the chimp paradox works so well, um, is helping people to come up with visually what is happening for me now and what is my brain doing and why is it doing that? Um, and that can really help you again, going back to what I said earlier, understand and catch what's happening in order to make sure you know how you want to respond um, because that's where we get a little bit more control back. Anxiety can make us, particular anxiety, can make us feel really out of control um, and, and it can create more panic so that it can almost make this vicious circle. Mm. Um, those books are really, really interesting, aren't they? Yeah, there's one for kids as well, isn't there? Oh, I didn't know that. No, I didn't know there's a yeah, kid on it. Yeah, there is, but... Um... It's a really useful concept and I think that, you know, for a lot of children, those visual references yeah. are really useful as well. It's like, why am I feeling angry? Why am I feeling upset? And so it's like, so it's all, it's very visual. But it's okay. Then yeah. 
emotions and we feel them when we go through them. Yeah, no, it's a, that's that's one thing I do, you know, um, as a parent is letting the kids know it is all right to feel how you feel because it is all part of growing up. But it's, it says earlier, as long as they can talk to us and feel happy talking to us, then we can try and help. You know, but. And be able to name it because for some children as well, depending, you know, on if you're growing up in a household where perhaps emotions aren't talked about or perhaps where emotions are invalidated. So <laughs> if you look at my kind of generation, if you're going to school in the early 80s, it was very common for people to say, don't cry. That's nothing to cry about, for example. Or what are you upset about that for? Or why are you being angry? So, you know, things have changed a lot. But yeah. if you've grown up with that, it's really hard then sometimes to know. A, what do I feel? So we might not be in an environment where we know what happy, sad, angry, frightened, shocked is yeah. and how it goes up in us and our bodies, but also whether it's okay to have those and express those emotions. Mm-hmm. And I always say, it's always a really interesting thing. Out of all of the emotions, anger always gets the roughest ride, but it's a normal emotion like any others because some of the behaviours associated with anger, obviously property damage, destruction, you know, yeah. violence against people people forget that actually the emotion behind it is very normal and that we do need to express it, but we may need particular help to express it in ways that perhaps aren't dangerous to ourselves and others. Um, but to a lot of children, they kind of don't cry, suck it up. It's so, you know, nothing to cry about. It can really invalidate them and not, it's not helpful for them understanding their own emotions. And, you know, that will follow through to adulthood for a lot of people as well. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, I hope you then don't want them to pass it on to their own children that goes down your line. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, the work you do, you must hear some incredibly sad stuff and tough stuff. How, how do you deal with that yourself once? How do you look after yourself? Every psychologist is probably different. So, I'm going to talk just for myself. So, mm-hmm. there are obviously frameworks in place. We have supervision. I have good peer support networks. Um after a little while you get used to hearing so you do habituate a little bit to what you're hearing so you know when you're a trainee some of those things seem much more shocking um so with experience um you can also come better ways of coping um being able to recognize it is hard as a psychologist some days you think you're doing okay and then suddenly things will hit you and um clinics can be really random you can have some days where there's not too much and sometimes you may have patients back to back and all of them are going through a really tough time and then don't forget you have your own life you don't come into that clinic room a blank slate every day got stuff going on in your own life sometimes those things can carry through and, and what you're feeling maybe your patient stuff or your client stuff but it could also be your stuff as well um talking to people being really honest finding those really trusted people it can be hard as a psychologist actually to reach out because there can be these preconceptions that you've got it all together and but if you're not together perhaps judgment by your own community if you're struggling that you're not doing a good job or you're not made for this job or that you're not okay um so trying to find really trusted people people that can hold that that don't want a problem solved so coming back to what i think before um and that's really hard um i'm actually really lucky i'm in a good place at the moment i have um, some really valued trusted people that i can be very honest with um where there's no judgment and it really helps me do a, a better job so if i've had a particularly difficult day um, there are people that I can reach out to and be really honest. I don't have to sugarcoat or pretend like something that I'm not. And that's okay. And that takes time because it's hard being vulnerable. You know, if you have a persona where you're helping others, I think it's extra hard if it's okay to say to come across as being vulnerable as well or that it's okay. Society's getting a bit better. Psychologists yeah. are getting a bit better about sharing some more of our own experiences within obviously professional boundaries. And that really helps as well. So talking on podcasts, demystifying who we are. Yeah. Right? People. So today, 
today I've talked about parenting I've talked about all sorts of things and that I think is really helpful for people to know that we're not this kind of robot that just switches on and off when we go to work we're you know, humans too right yeah we're humans too <laughs> that's okay <laughs> so it's okay so I've got a shirt out and a t-shirt we're humans too <laughs> <laughs> so what, what life lessons has uh, psychology taught you Oh, what life lessons. Oh, so, 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 so many. Do you know what the biggest thing? So I, I use a lot of what we call acceptance and commitment therapy. So it's kind of a new wave version of kind of CBT, I guess, is the best mm-hmm. way of kind of describing it for people that are new to it. Um, and one of the things that I always used to struggle with is this, we should all be happy. You've got to get somewhere. And even actually when I did my training, that was kind of part of one of the models of, you know, we're trying to get people to feel happy again. And actually, one of the things that I've learned, especially probably in the last 10 years since doing that type of therapy, is that we go with what we're feeling at the moment and so not falling in this trap mm. of, I've got to be perfect. I've got to have it all together when I'm happy. And a lot of people do that. Don't know, if I can just get to Christmas, if I can just get to this point, if I can just pay off this mortgage, then things will be okay. And actually, we're kind of living life on catch up. So I think one of the big things psychology has taught me is to be compassionate to ourselves and other people that we don't want to fall in this happiness trap and that we try and lean in and feel all the feels, even though it can be really hard. And if we're finding it hard, there will always be people in our wonderful little bubble who can help us and remind yeah. us that we need to sometimes feel stuff and that that's okay, even if it's hard. I'm very conscious of your time. And I know it's in the evening. It's up to your day. <laughs> yeah, but uh, a small question for you. What do you like your legacy to be? Oh, that's a really good yeah. one. What would I like my legacy? I don't think I've ever thought about that before. What do I, well, I come back to my values then. So I really value trying to reach as many people as I can, but I also value, I'm just going to probably sound a little bit narcissistic. I don't like tokenistic tick box work. <laughs> so if I'm going to do something, I really want to make a core shift. I really want to do it properly. So in my community project, I want to reach people. I spend a lot of time on it. I want to help that core shift in the community. So I really value kind of congruence, ethics, mm-hmm compassion and doing a really thorough job with staff um for me that's really really important so i'd hopefully when i depart this planet that whatever i've kind of started off people will take that model that you know that we want to create a core shift we want to empower people to manage their own emotional health um and that we're doing it in a really nice ethical way robust way that's important for me i haven't thought about that i'm going to take that away with me today thank you (laughs) that's a nice question how can we empower emotional health then how can how can I make someone feel better, you know, or work? Good question. <laughs> Lots of good questions. I'm going to sound a bit like Yoda now, aren't I? Knowledge. <laughs> Knowledge is power. That's from some movie or some other, something I've heard before, isn't it? In order to help people manage their emotional health, they need to know what it looks like when it's not great and then what they need to do to manage it. There's no point going straight to self-help books or videos on Instagram to breathe and do X, Y, Z if you don't know what you're experiencing. So coming back to you know what your anxiety footprint is, what your low mood footprint is. So empowerment comes through knowledge, but also compassion, giving people the space to understand it, supporting them while they're understanding it, and then disseminating that, communicating that to other people. So one of the lovely things we have this ability to talk we're doing it now on the podcast don't we so if somebody else off the back of this podcast goes ah maybe we'll talk a bit more about that what does anxiety look like for you so next time you see your mate and you're having a pint in the pub it might be hard and it's hard for guys yeah. we'll be honest you know just starting to go how are you doing you know how, how is that low mood you've had it before 
Mm. How do you know when it rocks up? You know, you can use informal language like that. Mm. I think conversations, having conversations, that's really, really important. I've learned something major that, and I'm going to give my mate a call after this because I know I was saying a couple of years ago. I, I just wish I get it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I need to do that. Listen, I found that incredibly useful. Thank you very much. It's oh, absolutely brilliant. Really, really, really enjoyed it. I've learned so much. Um, okay. I don't know my kids will as well. And, uh, yeah, but no, that's really, really good stuff. Thank you very much. I think what you're doing is remarkable. Thank you for having me. As always, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Tara. Personally, I took a lot from our chat, namely the importance of having conversations, the importance of compassion, and the importance of vulnerability. Please remember to like, follow, and comment. It really does help make a difference. Until next time, take care. Thank you.